Hello, everyone. Good morning. Yes, my name is Tom, that's right. Uh, I'm one of the elders here, uh, and it's uh, such a privilege every time I come and speak to be able to share uh, what God has put on my heart for you, and um, it's a particular privilege this morning because my mum and dad-in-law are here, um, which is great. So um, if you want to get to know them more, why don't you ask Dave what the football score is? Because um, I think it was 6-1, was it? Yeah. Uh, Anyway, we should look at scripture together because that's what we're here to do. We're going to be looking at Psalm 2 today. I was blown away by this psalm when I started reading it. Um, but Sai began the series last week looking at Psalm 1. And what he mentioned, what he didn't mention, Tom Delete as appropriate, uh, is that both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are traditionally understood to be linked and would be read together publicly by God's people. So get the book open sit it on your knee, and we're just going to be going through it together. Um, there's so much in this psalm, I'm not really going to be delivering a neat three-point preach with smart application and careful context. That's not going to happen. I'm just going to ramble through this beautiful poem and marvel with you at the treasure that's buried in these words, and then we can worship God as a response. Does that sound okay? Yeah. Everybody know what we're doing? Good. Yes, yeah, Sai gave us a great overview last week. If you missed last week, I do recommend go back and listen to it because I think it particularly frames the whole series that we're going to be doing on Psalms quite well. They are such unique books in the Bible, and they are raw and honest. And we as Christians, if we're honest, sometimes we can have this slightly irritating habit of like, trying to make things seem better than they really are. We have tendencies to go through difficult times and face hardships. And when we're feeling pain and confusion, if someone asks how we're doing, we might say something like, oh, God's in control. Yeah. All things work together for good for those that love the Lord. The Lord says, do not fear and do not be anxious as we smile peacefully with inward turmoil. Some of the language in these psalms would have you scolded by well-meaning friends. You can't think that. They're undiluted, raw, they're cut to the bone emotions. Then they're being written through trials, through tears, through terrors. We'll probably never know and experience. Psalm 10, why, O God, do you stand far away? Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? This is not poetic rhetoric. These are genuine questions being experienced and asked. And if King David experienced them and cried out to God, if Jesus experienced them and cried out to God, then we should fully expect that we will also experience them and wrestle with them. Because emotion is not a problem that needs a solution. And look, you're, you're looking at someone this morning who's on a journey. I'm learning in this as well. Maybe in the near future I'll be able to share a testimony of what God's doing in my life at the moment. But we can see that in the Psalms, it's normal to be fearful, to be angry, to be sad, to be disappointed. And the Psalms, they allow us to express our emotion to God and bring the situations we find ourselves in to him through these ancient songs. I love what I said last week. He said, no matter what you're feeling, there is a Psalm that's written for you to express that feeling to God. 
So don't try and sanitize your faith. Don't try and remove the blemishes of disappointment, of rejection, of fear, of loneliness, of distress and abandonment. You can't remove the pain. But you can bring the pain to God. And the Psalms are your tools. St. Irenaeus said that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And we're only alive when we embrace and accept our emotions and work through them with God, rather than using well-meaning Christianese to suppress them. So with that all in mind, let's get going. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The psalm really is quite fascinating. It touches on many really significant areas of theology, both before Jesus, which we refer to as the Old Testament, and after his life, which we refer to the New Testament. Both of them are in your Bibles. And it also hints even at the second coming, at the judgment of all mankind. One of the first things we can see as we look is that you've got two sides, two peoples, two kingdoms, and one is pitted against the other. The psalm sets the scene by crying out almost rhetorically, why do the nations, or the heathens, or the Gentiles, which is just the name given to non-Jewish people, why do the people and the rulers that hate God, why do they rage against him? We have the nations, then we have the Lord and his anointed. The kings and the rulers and the people say, let us burst away and cast off this morality. Let's scheme together, let's conspire against the holy in order to live in a way that we know displeases God. Let's work out the most effective way for us to circumvent and overturn the rules and the statutes of the land so that we're able to live in a way that is unrestricted by what God's people are saying. The anointed ones, those that say that they're hidden in the king, what is the most efficient way that we can think of to prevent their influence in our life from coming to anything at all? Does this sound like 3,000 years ago or recent history? 
is, is incredibly relevant to us today. So these people set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. And what does he do? He laughs at them. He looks down the nose over his half-moon spectacles and snorts. I think that's the sort of laugh. Contempt. He says only one thing. I love that. He doesn't need to rant and rave. He doesn't need to list, here are all the reasons why I'm God. <coughs> he just makes one statement. I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You set yourselves against my people, hear me. I've set my king on Zion. Zion here meaning Jerusalem, the city and the land of God's people in the Old Testament. And in ancient times, under the Old Testament law, the people would have rejoiced knowing that if their king is established by God, then they are established by God. Because the king was the representation of the people to God. And when God blessed the king, all God's people were blessed in the king. And when we read these verses, we can too celebrate that in the face of evil, in the face of the world's constant progression towards unspeakable acts, that God has set his king, Jesus Christ, once and for all to rule and reign over all the world, and that in him you are represented before God, and in him you are blessed. It's nice and convenient when we read these psalms that relate so well to Jesus. This is a messianic psalm, which means actually it's only best understood in the light of who Jesus was in the Messiah. But sometimes we can struggle, I think, as Christians, when we're reading psalms about the wrath and the anger, <coughs> excuse me, and the fury of God, because we know that Jesus bore the brunt of God's righteous anger on the, on the cross. So I love how the apostles quote this psalm in the book of Acts. You go to Acts chapter 4, it's going to be on the screen, and we're just going to read it. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, I love how they, they take the start of this psalm, and then they apply it to the rulers and authorities of their time who wanted to suppress and silence the gospel. And they call on God to stretch out his hand to heal for signs and wonders and for Jesus to be glorified. As Christians, our approach to oppression is to bless and not to curse. Through the, through the psalm, 
King David cries, you people have no idea. You plan and you scheme against God and against his anointed. But he has set me in Jerusalem and I will destroy you with a sword, paraphrasing slightly. We cry, you people have no idea. You scheme and you plan against God, but he has sent his son to be taken and to be beaten and to be pierced and to be scorned so that he can bring you not judgment, but healing to your bones and salvation to your soul. Don't be conformed to this world, it reminds us in Romans 12. Don't get caught up with the world's response to oppression, to intimidation and bullying, with violence and hatred. Don't be taken along with the river of this world. Remember continually, the words of Jesus are radical. That's what, that's why I fell in love with him in the first place, is when you read his words and you see his radical words of love, they just are unparalleled. In Luke 6, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, which was, a, um, which was an insult thing rather than a self-defense thing, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either, give to everyone who begs from you. Blimey. And for the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Really? And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. They're incredible words. And I think we really need to come back to that place of knowing that Jesus is calling us to live radically different to the world. Really radically different. I'll just remind, I just, my um, person I work with was telling her a story about my, how, my, how we had a garage fire, and she gave me this camera because I lost the camera in the garage fire. She just went and gave me this DSLR camera. I said to her, yeah, lost everything, lost the camera. She picked it up and she gave it to me. I said, you can have that. And I was blown away. I was like, you're an atheist. You don't love God, and you're showing me up as a Christian with your, with your act of love. And then I came back to these words. It, it, it doesn't say, love those who love you. It says, love those who hate you. And that's when it's radically different for us as Christians. Anyway, moving on, bit of an aside. Verse 7, look at verse 7. Today I have begotten you, and I will make the, na- make, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, I can't possibly imagine what King David was thinking when he wrote this verse. Like, was he saying that his reign as a king would extend to the ends of the earth? Doesn't make any sense. It wouldn't have made any sense without understanding it was a prophetic calling to the king who would come, who would be greater than he was, a king whose kingdom would extend right across the world to all peoples. The psalm would have been understood to be both about David and about his successor, who would be the Christ. And that's what we mean by messianic messianic psalm. But wait, I hear you scream. If this is referring to Jesus, 
then what does it mean when it says, today I have begotten you and you are my son? Does this mean that Jesus wasn't his son and that now he has become his son? The ESV uses the word begotten, but other versions say literally became your father to declare the birth of. That's a good question, I say. Moving on. No, seriously though, I want to unpack this. Because it's in scripture, we're looking at it, and it's important to emphasize this. Saying that Jesus was created and God was not his father and then became his father is one of the oldest heresies in church history. <coughs> Fact, Jesus has always existed as part of the trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity into eternity. We sang it beautifully this morning. There is no start. There is no end. That's the fact. But we have this rather confusing word that comes up a lot. Begotten. And in Psalm 2, it's speaking of the future Messiah. But if you look at in, in John 3.16, the famous verse, the fridge magnet verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The meaning of the English word begotten can mean to create, as in a father and mother begat their child. But the word begotten is an unsatisfying translation of the Greek word in John, monogene, probably pronouncing that right, wrong, meaning unique and one of a kind which is in line with the rest of Scripture that says God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit have always existed equally and that Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. A little bit of church history here. You're going to hear it because I find it interesting. The heresy that Jesus was a created being came to a head in the church about the 4th century. And there was this huge church meeting meeting called the Council of Nicaea, right? Think of the Council of Elrond from Lord of the Rings, right? But instead of the ring, you've got a heretic. And they're all deciding what to do with it. Have we got a picture? Ah, oh, see, I found that online. That's, that's like a weird medieval portrait of the Council of Elrond from Lord of the Rings, which I think perfectly serves my metaphor. So that's, that's what you've got in your head, right? So they're at this council, and they're deciding what to do with this, this guy called Arius. And the Jehovah's Witnesses, who we all know well, they are just modern-day Arian heretics. Same old, same old. Believing and preaching the false gospel that Jesus is a created being. And Arius stands before the elders and he gives this long speech about how Jesus is not God. He's a created being. But at the meeting, right, there's this guy called Saint Nicholas. That Saint Nicholas. And he gets so angry, he stands up and punches him in the head. <laughs> so goes the myth. And I've got actual pictures. <laughs> you can do anything with AI now. The reason why I love this is because JWs refuse to celebrate Christmas. It's like they're still bitter about St. Nicholas punching their father heretic in the head. <laughs> But in both John 3.16 and in this psalm, the unique son is being proclaimed as the ruler of all nations. He's existed from eternity into eternity. Paul echoes this in Romans 
when he says of Jesus that through the resurrection he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Did that come up? Oh no, still got the pictures, that's fine. Paul doesn't mean that he wasn't the son before the resurrection. It's just that at the moment of the resurrection, it all comes into perfect clarity and focus. Think of it like a coronation. When the late Queen Elizabeth II died, her eldest son, Prince Charles, immediately became the king, literally in a heartbeat. He was fully king all the way through and leading up to his monumental coronation where he's crowned the King of England with extravagant show of power and display of pomp. This is a poor reflection of Christ who has existed for all times as the Son of God. And in the most monumental part of human history, in a display of heavenly power, he was declared to be the Son of God at the resurrection from the dead when the curse of death was broken. And it's been beautiful to be singing that this morning. He was declared to be the Son of God at the moment that he was resurrected from the tomb. Does that make sense? I think so. Listen, if you've got any questions about the Trinity, I don't want to open up a can of worms, but we have got Rob on staff now as an elder, and he is in the building from Thursday till Friday, from the hours of 9 o'clock till 5 o'clock. His mobile number and his email address are all in the church phone book. He's very happy to talk you through any further questions you may have. So let's move on. It says, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Verses 8 to 9, they're quoted in the book of Revelation, right at the back of the Bible, when it talks about the end of all time itself. The King James says, verse 27, chapter 2, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and the vessels of a potter. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken into shivers. And that brings out, that brings out intertestament references to three now. Excuse me. Number one, the book of Acts references the opening verses and it transforms our thinking. It replaces the wrath of God with a call for the kingdom to come and a reminder to the early Christians that Jesus' church cannot be overcome by man's scheming. Point number two, Jesus refers to the coronation, sorry, Romans refers to the coronation moment in the psalm as Jesus is raised from the dead. And the Father declares him to be his only unique, begotten, but not created, son. And finally, three, the final verses are quoted in the book of Revelation. And they call to the whole world to know that Jesus will return in power and with him bring the judgment of God on all flesh. Some for reward, some for punishment. Therefore, when we look at the world, and we do look at the world, and we become terrified or we despair, 
We can pray that God would extend his kingdom now as it is in heaven and that his grace and his love would turn many hearts to Jesus. That's what that psalm allows us to do. And we can also rest knowing that Jesus will one day subject all authority to his rule for perfect judgment. Duncan Purvey recently shared this prophetic word with the elders off the back of the last week of prayer we had. And I just wanted to read out a portion of it here because it's particularly relevant. Have a listen to this. As I looked round, I experienced a strong sense of love for my fellow church members. I felt at peace and continued to quietly worship, enjoying what the Spirit was doing. I realized that God was showing me that he loves his church and it is at its most beautiful when we are worshiping and doing his work with unity and love. Then, by the Spirit, I briefly saw Jesus. He was smiling and at peace. I saw that he was so pleased with his church and loved us so much. I saw that he is perfect and powerful, not flustered by the schemes of the enemy or the world which has come against the church. He showed me that the world, no matter how dark, cannot stop his plans. His purposes are unstoppable. This encouraged me because I realized what a mighty, powerful God we worship and that he is on our side. Then I was reminded of the scripture, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Amen. There is such significance in this word. Jesus is pleased with you, with all that you're doing for his kingdom. He's in control of the good and the bad. So church, Let's not grow weary in what we're laboring for, but press in to all that he is doing amongst us. Now is not the time to step back. Now is the time to step up. My final point this morning, the last section of this psalm that we haven't looked at. Kiss the sun or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's an unusual expression, isn't it? It's a weird one. The kissing of the monarch's hand is required of prime ministers in order for them to be installed in office. They can't actually serve as prime minister until they kiss the hand of the king. It's a sign of loyalty, isn't it? It's a sign of complete surrender to the king. And Jesus calls us to follow him completely in every single area of our life, in every relationship we have. We can't claim to be a follower of Christ if we're not taking him into every corner of our lives, giving him the key to every door and allowing him free reign over who we are. That's what it means to be a Christian. Through this psalm, we see him as the king of kings. And he calls us to worship him fully and to kiss him in submission to him. Jesus, he's kissed twice in scripture, isn't he? He's kissed once by Mary Magdalene. She was a woman which would have made a second-class citizen in that time. She was a prostitute previously. She was previously filled with demons. She was seen by others as ceremonially, socially, spiritually 
politically detestable and unclean. She worships the king, knowing that her scarlet sins have been removed and kisses his feet. She knew her failings, her shortcomings, and her wretched situation. She knew her eternal prospects. She knows it well, and that's why she wept as she washed and kissed the feet of the king. He's kissed a second time by Judas, a man, a disciple, a Jew, accepted by peers. He betrays Jesus with a kiss, and he reveals to the whole world that he has on the throne of his heart a treasure that is more valuable to him than Jesus could offer. He refused to see the Davidic king taking up his throne. He saw the miracles firsthand, but something in his heart wouldn't accept them. His pride kept him prisoner to his greed, and to the very end, his kiss sentenced him to punishment. And here's the truth I'd like to leave with you this morning. We are all called to come and kiss the Son, to kiss the King of Kings and surrender to him. Complete surrender. You're only blessed by Jesus when you completely surrender to him. Whatever you hold on to will cost you dearly. And whatever you let go of, he will bless you so richly for it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. Are you so surrendered to Jesus? Are you so radically like him that people question their own belief system? Or has the world crept in a little bit? Are your waters mixed with the sediment of this world? And it's not as radical anymore. Has the muck and the grime of the culture that we're living built up in your life? Well, then it's time to surrender again to the King of Kings. Let's have the band back up. We're going to respond in in worship because I want to worship. Verse 12, it says, To us who are found sheltering in him, we are blessed. We are blessed with a peace that only God can give. We're blessed with the joy of our salvation. We're blessed with the presence of God himself through the person of the Holy Spirit. We are blessed with every hour that we live with him, and we're blessed in the very hour of death, that as we close our eyes here, we open them in his presence. We are a blessed people. And this is our king, right, set on high, established in heaven in all power and all authority. In him we are also established blessed and set apart for every good work that he has for us. I want to worship him now. I want to worship the king. I want to surrender to him. I want to submit to him, and I want him to bless me. So I'll invite you to stand, and we can respond in worship. If anybody would like any prayer, I'll be over to the side during worship, and we can have a time of prayer as well. Thank you.